Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Espensky. Today we are discussing chapter 18. This is part 4. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. So Pete, we got up to, after uh, our last session, we got up to looking at emotions and we're looking at pure and impure emotions and the way Spensky is defining these. Let's just give people an idea of where this is going. Spensky, right now, categorises emotions in two. And pure and impure emotions. And what he's at great pains to say at the beginning of the section where we, we're going to start is that we're not doing this from the viewpoint of the moralist. In other words, you know, the moralist would say that lust, for example, and fle- as, as Spensky calls it, fleshly desire would be <laughs> an impure emotion. But he's saying Provided that that emotion is not corrupted by any other emotion, you know, colouring it, then it's a pure emotion. There's no such thing as as morality when it comes to defining the purity and impurity of an emotion. That that's pretty much what he's that's the, that's the standpoint that he's coming from, right? He is coming from that point. There's a part that we're about to do today, where Spensky brings this analogy in, and I hate it so much that I could always rip my own bowels out. And yet, I can't think of a better one. It's just such a... Yeah, it's such a dull fucking analogy. A dull subject. And yet, yet I thought, actually, it does the job really well. So you're going to have to to suck it up. I am. I I am going to suck it up. Well, I look forward to getting to that part now. I'm looking forward to that part. Come on, you better better move us on, aren't you? Otherwise, we'll never get to it. Right. So, Spensky has has put his point of view forward that um, pure and impure emotion is not classified on the emotion itself. It's uh, the emotion comes down to whether it's mixed with other emotions that therefore impure or whether it is the emotion singularly uh, on its own and therefore it's pure. And I think the reason he's doing that is because mixing other emotions takes away from the intent that that emotion has. If if you're being sympathetic to someone in in an attempt to make yourself look fabulous, that's different to being sympathetic to someone. I agree with you. And I think that, you know, when, I, I mean, I laughingly mentioned the fleshly em- desires emotion that he, <laughs> he, he actually uses. And I think, you know, it's worth mentioning that he does this for a very, very specific reason. Because people have been brainwashed by the people that rule them and have been for a long, long time. We talk centuries, go back thousands of years to consider the fleshly desire to be this, you know, impure one, right? Mm. And the re- and they don't live by the same morality that they impose on you. 
So people have got this idea that a fleshly desire and, you know, and other things like that, the things, the things that would give them the freedom to enjoy their human experience to the full, um, people have been crushed into thinking that there's something wrong and damaged and, and dirty about these emotions. And I think Espensky's very cleverly, within two or three lines, in a very um, philosophic and uh, intellectual expose, without doing the things, without saying the things that I'm saying now, has actually knocked that on the head and said, look, this, this imposed morality is fake. Pay no attention to it. An emotion is either pure or impure in as much as it's not tainted or coloured by another emotion. And we're going to go on right now to how that happens and one or two examples of that actually happening. Yeah, I think what Aspensky has, has pointed out is that when it comes to these emotions, we've been given, as you say, what they call morality, a set of rules. I'm sorry to interrupt you, I have to. Morality imposed is not a set of rules at all. It isn't rules. If it was, if it was simply rules, you would grudgingly go along with it, but it doesn't. It cuts to the heart of human experience and desire for, to be your authentic self. It stops human beings from being their authentic self. And it does it precisely by not being rules, but by being virtually impossible ways of living. You know, if you were, even in the era of devout Christianity in, you know, the the Anglo-Saxon, yes. in our world, let's say Victorian Edwardian England and the Commonwealth as it now is, the Empire as it was then, you would find the most pious saying, we strive to follow these Christian ideals, but it's terrible, you know, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, we have all of these sayings, and they say, you know, but none of us are perfect like Christ and this, I'm telling you, nobody can be perfect to that set of rules, because it goes against the nature of what it is to be human, and what it does is make us feel worthless, hmm? this is what it does, mm. and small, our our ruling people, our ruling elites have never, ever, ever held themselves to this standard of restrictive morality. So it's it's important to note that, you know, what you said, it's not casual. It's not a set of rules at all. It's it's a guideline for how you are supposed to impose these restrictions on your natural desire as to have a human experience and then to feel bad about yourself when you don't live up to the ludicrously impossible standard that those guidelines set. Now I'm talking about guidelines. Does that ring uh, a bell with anything that's going on in the world right now? Yes, I'm just thinking, hang on a second, with our COVID we've got a bunch of guidelines and guess what? We've got people out there going, you're not doing this and you're a bad person because you're not doing that. Uh, just like back in the Middle Ages, you're a heretic. Thank you. Uh, and that's why I'm saying, I'm just saying that when you say rules, that's why I stopped you. I, because mm. I don't want to let that go. Morality imposed never was, was a set of rules. It never was. And it, ne it wouldn't have worked the way that it's done if it was a set of rules. The idea is for people to feel bad, small, guilty, all these things that it engenders that makes you easy to control. Self-imposed. It's self-imposed. And, and, then, and then obviously the masses then judge you 
The, the, your, your peers and your local community will judge you. Do you go to church? Do you live up to the standards of the ideals? Are you trying hard enough? You know, no. Yeah. So they, so and there you, you don't, go. You're cast out. You're, you're That's the one. So, so, you, so then, so then it, it brings, yeah. So then it brings fear into the equation. So if they were a set of rules, people would do it. People would just do it, even if they didn't like it, and they would say. It's nothing to do with me. I just have to go along with it. Blah, 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 blah. It wouldn't be the same. The guilt comes from you not feeling worthy. It destroys your sense of individual self-worth that you can't live up to this morality. When the morality was only invented and it's as fake as anything. And, and you know, why would you have to live up to something that somebody else invented? It's not, it's, but you, you were brought up from a childhood into believing that these frameworks are the absolute truth of nature. They are natural truths, and then they're not. So, yeah, they're not rules. They are, they are guidelines, and they're imposed to make everybody feel inadequate, unworthy, and small, and guilty. And that is very interesting, because with the Spensky talking about emotion, you mm. know, it's, if these are, run, these are where emotions are vilified or... Mm. Um, put up on a pedestal, and absolutely, and Aspensky's coming in and going. That has nothing to do with real emotion. Emotion is what it is, based on its purity on its own. As soon as you start um, using it to mix with other things, you know you, this is virtuous, and if you don't do it, you're guilty. Like mm-hmm. like those two emotions together, then it's impure. Well, I like, I like. Um... The way he then brings it out um, in the next sort of paragraph, and he gives a great analogy about glass. Yes. Pure glass, pure glass, you would be able to see through perfectly. You know, modern glass using technology. Yes, you can look out the window, and it's if the window's clean, it's pretty unobstructive. But if there were impurities in the glass, or you know, if it wasn't an even thickness, you would get a distorted view through that glass because the glass is impure. I think that's a great. Mm. Great analogy, and it's the same with emotions. You would get the truth from an unsolid emotion, that's the emotion for its own sake, that wasn't coloured by anything else. And so we, if we go on and look at pure and impure emotions, what would be exa- an example of um, an impure emotion? Well, I think um, guilt could be an impure emotion if it's linked to... Uh, a standard that's not met. Well, hang on. Um, you just mentioned one emotion, guilt. Why would that be impure? Guilt, guilt, unsullied by anything else, would be pure. We shouldn't be talking about an emotion here as the analogy itself. Like I said, you, it's very much like saying, I'm going to describe water by saying, well, water, it's actually like water. That's, that's, that's a poor starting point. Spensky does it right. So so he gives us a situation and then describes emotions that might be involved in it and then get mixed so that we can clearly see what he means by this. Now, when I saw the first words of this, I nearly died. I thought, oh my God, you boring git. Chess. You're talking about two men playing chess. Well, I'll never in my life think of two men playing chess. I'm sure that some people love it, Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky. And bear in mind that he is Russian and it is virtually their national sport. And it, 
<laughs> if sport it can be. Uh, and so, you know, chess, it, it meant a lot more to Russians than it will ever mean to me and possibly most people listening to this. But there you go. But yet it turns into a fantastic analogy, you know, and he talks about these, you know, these two guys playing chess. They, they would look, if you were watching them play chess and God help you get a life. But if you were watching two men playing chess, they may appear outwardly to be exactly the same. There they are, sitting at either side of the board, for, for, the, for all the world, looking like statues, gazing on the chessboard. Now, Uspensky doesn't say this, but I want to convey the sense of utter tedium it would be to watch two men playing chess. Watching paint dry is an analogy that comes close to describing how it must feel to be in the audience at a, at, at a chess match. But, but... These two men on either side of the chessboard, who appear to us to be exactly the same, Spensky says, internally, one in one may burn self-love, a desire for victory, and he'll be full of different, unpleasant feelings towards his rival. Fear, envy of a clever move, spite, jealousy, animosity, or schemes to win. Mixed emotions inside, even though outwardly appears calm and nothing but inside you've got all of these in all of these things combining these emotions combining to create an impure emotion he will never get knowledge of why he's playing this game and, and what the point of it is and what he gets out of it because it's clouded by these impure this impure impurity of emotion and he mentions quite a few there which is the complexity that we most of us live amongst and yet he says but the other man on the other side of the, the chessboard, simply loves to solve complex problems. And he isn't interested in winning. He's looking at the, at the chessboard and saying, like, okay, a game of chess is a mathematical problem, which, by the way, I've never considered it to be. But when you think about it, it actually is. And Dispensky, being a mathematician, you know, would, would love it. So this guy is literally using Star Trek Vulcan logic as he ponders the chessboard. Now, these two men look outwardly exactly the same, but one of them is going through a very pure process of working out just for the sake and the love of the knowledge, you know, uh, of being able to solve yeah. the mathematical problem. Whereas the other one's got all of these twisted, mixed emotions about, about the game and will not get a pure view of it. It will be like, oh, thank God that's over and I'm glad I won. Um... Whereas this man will be looking at to see if the problem is solvable and will love what, what he gets out of actually solving the problem. It will have increased his state of knowledge of um, how to use mathematical principles to solve problems. I think it's a great analogy because mathematics is so pure. You're right, because when we look at the first man who's inwardly in turmoil, when he mm -hmm. finishes the chess game, what has he learned? He's, he's, learned learned. That he's, gone th he's learned that he's gone through stress because mixed emotions yes. usually lead to stress. That's right. He's learned that the next time he plays chess, he's going to feel uh, a, a huge amount of pressure. And if he doesn't win, he's going to feel a huge amount of shame or, you know, chastise himself. Well, personal being, shame, you know, yeah, yeah exactly. Idiot. Yeah, he'll personal get, shame, yeah. yeah. Like, he, he will, he'll put all that onto himself. But the first man has actually learned 
something about the game of chess. So the next time he plays chess, he's bringing that knowledge to the table and he will learn yeah. something else the next time. Absolutely. And, and it's the pure knowledge that, that, that the emotion has granted him in his human experience. Now, we're all having a human experience here on Earth. And, you know, would people discuss the meaning of life and this, that and the other? And Spensky is, is now hinting at something that he will expand on, that the idea is to have this experience of life in its purest sense, to learn something that you can then actually bring to the human experience so that your next experience is coloured in a positive way by the knowledge that you bring to it. As a baby, you learn to walk and you become a toddler and you bring that knowledge of walking into your next experience i.e. getting i.e. running away from parents and having them chasing around after you like a headless chicken you know <laughs> but you do bring that that knowledge to the next experience and as you get older and you get clouded by education and the morality that your parents have been have had imposed on them being imposed on you you then start to cloud the purity of your experiences but right at the start you 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 learn something for the sake of learning it and it's it, it, there's almost a purity to it you could argue the case that a, a toddler might have other motivations blah 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 and it's a mixed emotion but for the sake of analogy i think it works quite well you know that the you you, you bring pure knowledge to your human experience or you bring you bring clouded knowledge to your human experience the cloudier the knowledge that you bring to your human experience, um, the less pleasant it becomes. Well, the less reusable it is. Yeah, and the less you learn, you know, in a usable sense. Yeah. Like I think you look at people who have had um, bad relationships and they approach the next relationship with what they've learned from that bad relationship. Now, if they could just take the relationship as it didn't work, they would be able to approach the next relationship with, well, let me see how I go on this one. But if you bring from the last relationship of, you know, these people, you know, for example, you know, people are always out to use and abuse my love or whatever it is that, you know, they think, they're going to cloud the experience they get. Okay, I, 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 that is so true. A friend of mine um, was on Tinder. This is a while back. You know what Tinder is? Yeah. This is the dating app. I do. It's a dating thing, yeah. Okay, right. Well, he showed me, and this basically, when you when you go on, he was showing me that the what happens is you get a picture of a woman. A woman's a woman's put a, a woman's put her profile. There's the picture, and a lot of them write a little bit underneath. And when you read the writing that some of them have put in, you can tell that they've had um, miserable experiences in previous relationships, and they're bringing that baggage to their Tinder account. Well, in the in the um, the wording of Tinder, swipe left because you're going to have a problem with that lady. Yeah. He, he was telling me, he says, he says when anybody is talking about the, when anybody brings any wording into their Tinder profile based on quite clearly rotten experiences they've had in the past, you know that they're, they are going to create those rotten experiences in the next one because they haven't learned. They, they, they've, they've, they're carrying that baggage of those mixed and impure emotions with them right now. Mm. But had they been able to look at that experience that they had, say it was a bad one, someone cheated on them or whatever whatever they oh, see yeah, as betrayal. Say, mil- say betrayal. Yeah. Yeah. Say, say you, you were betrayed in a relationship. If you could look at that and say that is what betrayal feels like, 
yeah. and leave it at that, it means nothing more or nothing less. That That is the experience of betrayal. Mm-hmm. And then you start your next relationship, clear slate, if you could, clear slate. Well, yeah, well, let's, Im- let's imagine you could, because and let, let's imagine that certain actions in the new relationship bring back that feeling, that pure feeling of betrayal. If it had been pure, you will be certain in your knowledge that you are about to be betrayed or you are being betrayed again. And you can then make the conscious decision, yep, that's going. If you start saying to yourself, oh, I might be wrong, I'll give him another chance, I'm going to I'm going to start looking at his phone and making sure that he isn't, and that's a, you've now coloured the emotion. You've now got mixed emotions yes, there because you've, got, because you've brought yes. jealousy in and doubt and all the other things. Uh, um, but if you literally had the pure knowledge of betrayal and you brought that into your experience, the moment that that feeling occurs again, you know with certainty and trust that it's happening again and it's time for you to move on and this relationship will not work, blah, blah, or whatever choice you do make, but you'll be making it from a positive sense of certainty rather than doubt and is it and then jealousy and all the other things come into colour and cloud the emotion. Good good analogy. Yeah, well, I think that's that's the, the point that Aspensky's kind of making here. He's saying mm. it's about true knowledge, not... Um, like if the second second one, if you're starting to question things and, and you know look for other things that might oh maybe it is maybe it isn't, you actually haven't got true knowledge. Mm-hmm. You you haven't learnt um, what that emotion is. Spensky says this, you know, when we're talking about um, outwardly outward emotions and so on that seem to be pure, you know. Um, literary, scientific, and public, and even the spiritual and religious activities of men. He says, in all regions of this activity, only complete victory over the pseudo-personal elements, in other words, when you bring subjectivity into the matter, only complete victory over that leads a man to the correct understanding of the world and of himself. So basically, you have to keep subjectivity out of all considerations when you're looking for pure truth as related to you by the emotions and other things. He says, all emotions coloured by such self-elements are like concave, convex or otherwise curved glass, which refract rays incorrectly and distort the image of the world. Isn't that a beautiful way of putting it? That is beautiful, yeah, and that is exactly what it does. So he's equating human subjectivity... To, to a curvature in a, gla- in a glass that gives you a distorted view of the world. And he's looking at this from the point of view of emotions. When you bring subjectivity into an emotion, then you're not getting the right view of what's actually going on. Really. And he's calling those false self-elements. So it's, yeah. it's making them personal. Mm, exactly. The self-elements, they are subjective, purely subjective. And he says... The problem of emotional knowledge consists in a corresponding preparation of the emotions which serve as organs of knowledge. Now, I like that phrase. The emotions are the organs of knowledge. Mm, yeah, because if interpreted as they are they, are, they are simply giving you information. Mm. And if you, if you, under, if you learn that, the language of emotions so that, hang on, this feeling is an emotion that's telling me that. Or, you know, and, and you know, this emotion is 
there's a feeling that's telling me X or Y or Z. And you can actually start classifying them. It's like learning a musical scale. You know, ah, that note is G, that note is F, that note is B minor, and so on. You, you learn to interpret them. And that way, you can actually use that, lang that musical language to create things. We can do the same. Mm. We can expand... We can expand our, our experience of music by knowing what the notes sound like and, and which ones go together, which ones complement each other and which ones great. By the way, jealousy also can be a very pure emotion. Hatred can be a very pure emotion. We, we must take the moral um, attachments that have been imposed on us away from these emotions. If, if we're living in this 3D experience and we are experiencing pure emotion, what does that give us? A pure experience. This is, this is the Garden of Eden experience. That's what it gives us. And we can go back, we can go back to the Adam Kadmon, um, the, the universal man. We get, we get the Garden of Eden experience. This is where every emotion was pure. Every experience was pure. And it only became clouded when guilt was introduced and then jealousy and then and then fear and shame was introduced by this uh, the analogy of the serpent the apple and eve etc 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 um i dare i dare say people want to, to argue about the patriarchal nature of that it isn't at all and it would be another series of podcasts if we want to go through the symbolism and what that all represents. But nevertheless, it is the analogy, that pure experience which we all could have. The nearest thing you ever got, and by the way, it didn't come close to the Garden of Eden, but it did have the Garden of Eden was its goal, was the very, very, very short-lived hippie 1967 Summer of Love experience mm. where people were talking about these communities of freedom. And they even talk about, you know, the Garden of Eden in some of the songs um, and so on. Um, and all of that joy, but it was crushed very, very quickly because obviously the people who've imposed morality didn't want several thousand years of imposed guidelines to be destroyed overnight by that group of people but nevertheless this is something to aim for at least it's a goal to aim for a pure way of experiencing living if you could experience life with pure rather than mixed emotions you would just have experiences a friend of mine has this saying when you know when i tell her oh this happened and this happened and this happened and i feel like this, this and this because of it. Say so it's usually, you know, to do with what someone else has done or whatever. And she comes back and says to me, well, that's information. And it's not how I feel is the information. It's the facts that I'm saying, this, this and this happened. And she's just saying, that is information. And if you can look at something, and that takes all the sting out of it. Suddenly I drop all the, well, they're a bastard because they did this or something else. It's just that is what they did. That action is information. And once it takes all the other emotion out of it, the pure emotion that you feel is, I just got some information. What am I going to do with it? Yeah, and that, that's, that's wonderful, isn't it, when you can do that? Do you realise, though, that if everybody was doing that, then we, wouldn't ha we, we would end up in a place where we weren't filtering the negative because the natural outcome of everybody rejecting the framework and having literally just learning from every happening you would end up with 
the Garden of Eden experience because people wouldn't be allowing the anything to color and and mix and you know and make impure the emotional experience. Yeah, yeah. So it's really it's giving you that that opportunity to have joy, even if the emotion you're feeling is one of jealousy or mm-hmm. one of hatred. You can experience it as that emotion. Bas- yeah, that, basically, you, you, lock, you lock it away in your cupboard and you say, that's, that's one that I don't like. Um, therefore, um, I, when, I, when I see that coming, I will do something. I will make my experience something that, that avoids it from, from coming back up. Rather like we do this with food. Well, lots of people do. I eat virtually anything. But let's say, for example, oysters. I know that you, there are people who either love them or there are people that hate them. So the people that dislike oysters, uh, for whatever reason, put in their library of, of experience the fact that they don't like oysters and it makes them feel bad and it makes them feel sick. So when they go to um, a buffet and there is a, a table and there are oysters on the table, they see the oyster, the memory of the experience come, brings out from their memory bank, oh my God, these make me feel sick. And they go to somewhere else on the table and get a ham sandwich or whatever it is that they get that they don't, that they do like. In other words, it allows us to gravitate towards that which we enjoy, but it also acts as a warning against the things that we don't enjoy. Now, some people might enjoy um, things that other people don't. And that can be the same for emotions too. I mean, that does allow, you take off the existing moral framework and it does allow for every other experience that any human being can have to be pure. So so it does mean that certain things would happen that you won't like, but then your job is to avoid those situations and allow and allow people that do like those situations to have them without judgment and, you know, and, 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 and with total acceptance. I think that that pure emotion is is giving you information, like you said. You know, I oysters—they're going to make me sick. I don't like being sick. Therefore, that's information that you get that feeling. Yeah. Um, but here's another one: if if I'm jealous, so he he's, he's a story. You know, um, the two kids sitting in the in the gutter watching the Rolls Royce drive past, and one kid says. Oh, that bastard, you know, one one of these days he'll lose all his money and then he'll know what it's like to live, you know, in the real world. And the other kid says, wow, I'm going to have one of those one day. Mm. And it's it's jealousy. Both are jealous of the Rolls Royce, but one is saying that jealousy is telling me what I want. The other one is saying, well, I'm jealous and I'm going to, you know, I've, I've got all these other emotions mixed with it, the jealousy, you know, the hate and the mm. um, and, and the desire to bring down. So jealousy in that, that instance is a pure emotion when it is just what it is and telling you, well, that's something I want. So yeah. when you feel jealousy, you go, oh, well, that's great to know. I know that I actually really desire to have that. Should we? be even calling it jealousy at that point because i think um this is a problem with language again we we come across this often don't we when we're discussing these things and i think you know a philosophical discussion when it gets philosophical and sometimes these do uh language is always the barrier so the kid that wants that that is uh, spurred into wanting the rolls royce 
I'm not going to say that he's jealous at all. I think we have to use a different way to describe that. I think it's, I think that what you'd say is that he's inspired. I, I, I wouldn't yeah. say jealous because the reason I'm going to say that we, cho we choose a different word is quite simple. We cannot help but be colored by the associations, the emotional association that we put with words in language. You tell me where you will find in common everyday speech or in the world at large a human being that will, if you ask them to describe jealousy, will give it any positive um, whatsoever. We won't. People think that jealous, people always think that someone who is jealous is a negative person and is having a negative experience and they would suggest counselling so that they can overcome that jealousy. I wouldn't use jealousy. To, I wouldn't use jealousy in that analogy because I think that the kid that sees the Rolls Royce and is inspired to take the actions necessary so that he can get the Rolls Royce one day is inspired. I don't think it's jealous. I don't think it's and jealousy. Perhaps both of them have desire and one is looking at the desire and saying, I can't have that, so I want that person down where I am. Yeah. The other is looking at their desire and going, I'm inspired. I want me to be up there. That person yeah. can have it, so why can't I? I'm going to have it too, like somehow. Yeah. So maybe right. desire is the emotion and it's got a different spin. Now, now we're talking, this is good because now we're reducing it. We're trying to find, we're trying to reduce down. Where is the pure emotion involved in that story? And I think that's more like it. One has a desire to bring everybody down to his level and the other has a desire that he and perhaps others should have the ability to get up to that level, to the level that they're watching. Now, when I say other people, the person that wants, that says, wow, that's fantastic. One day I'm going to have that. I'm going to work towards having that, has to have some idea that it is possible for him to have that from where he is yeah. now. And therefore must have the idea that everybody that wants it could have it. Um, the other person has the idea that um, the bastard in the Rolls Royce was somehow lucky. And wouldn't it be a better world if everybody had fuck all like me so that none of us would have, have to experience this jealousy? They both have a desire and the desire is pure. The desire is for happiness. I, I, I'm a great believer that what people want is to be happy. The desire is the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. It's pure. When you, when you take it down to that unreducible level, you can't reduce it anymore. It is desire. One is the desire that all men are equal. And the other is the desire, I'm going to use my abilities as a human being to do what that person did and get, that role, get a Rolls Royce just like that and have that experience. But it's still, it's still desire that, that, that is the impetus. The really important point is reducing what we see to the core emotion. Yeah. Because that's the one that's going to have purity. Everything, everything else you think about it won't. Yeah, that's the one that's going to give you the knowledge. Easier said than done, but not as difficult as some of the other propositions in philosophy and spirituality and everything else. Because you can actually rationalize this. You can even use your intellect. You don't have to become the greatest meditator on earth or, or do any of this hard work. You can just rationalize it. We just did that with that story in a heartbeat. Boom. So actually what they're both experiencing is a desire. You can take that about any situation, whether it's happening to you or whether it's one you're observing 
in someone else and say, what's the root emotion there, bang? And then you have then the knowledge of that purity. Done. Done, yeah. Fantastic. So anybody can do it. Yeah. We can search for the pure, the pure core value of any event that we experience or see or hear about. And with that comes the information, the knowledge. Once you've gone beyond the desire, that desire is now an impure emotion. It's something else. It's the desire that's at the heart of it. I understand what you're saying, yeah. Yeah. The only re- the only reason I'm harsh on this is because we c- we can actually ruin uh, what's being written by going off into flowery ideas of what we're starting to think, and then it becomes subjective and all the rest of it. But really, the heart of the matter, cutting to the chase right here in this critical last part of this chapter, is that it's it's this idea of finding the purity of an emotion before you start passing judgment on other people before you start passing judgment on yourself and so on if we understand it then we become tolerant as well so again i'm talking about we could end up with a garden of eden experience if everybody did do this of course when only one person's doing it, or just a few people are doing it, and the rest of the people in the world are going around mindlessly programmed with a framework of morality, it doesn't work, does it? I go back to 1967 and the hippie movement. It just didn't. Couldn't work. Yeah. And didn't. And Aspensky talks about this a little later on. Everybody has to do it, or or it's it's gone. Yeah, it does. So... He does. Uh, where he gets where does that. that take us? Ah! The pleasure let of activity. Consi- yes, let's let's consider an emotion valuable and capable of high development as the pleasure of activity. And I think this is very interesting where he talks about you know the the pleasure of doing something and then losing sight of the purpose of what you're doing it. In for. other words, as Eckhart Tolle would say, living in the now. Yeah. You you enjoy the process. Yeah. You know people say that all along, don't don't keep your mind on the goal to the point where you don't live through the process of getting there, through the journey of getting there. You've got to enjoy the steps along the way. Otherwise, you only live a tenth of a life. Yeah, but I think Aspensky, I think Aspensky's also saying that the, the, the flip side of that is that we, we get to a point where we're busying ourselves for the sake of being busy and it's not achieving anything either. Yeah. It's... Um, we're, we're distracting ourselves. We're using the pleasure of activity to distract ourselves and get immersed in uh, to get immersed in something that has lost sight of its end goal. Uh, he talks about spiritual movements, for example. You know, the, the, the activities that they that they get into become the become the religion, not the goal of um, having some attunement with with a higher aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Okay. He does. And I I mean, now we're, we're onto it. We're, we're into the critical few pages of this, of this chapter that, yeah. that are, of themselves, could change the way that the world runs if everybody would just read it and understand it. Seriously, it's that, it's that, it's yeah. that good. We're talking of... Yeah, he says that it, this idea of the pleasure of activity could lead to the incredible evolution of humanity. But he also says that it is the cause of an infinite number of delusions and faux pas for which humanity pays bitterly. And and then he goes on to explain this. And as you just said, the activity uh, itself for the aim, you know, it it gets confused. We we confuse the activity for the aim. Yeah. And 
we sacrifice, we sacrifice the aim in order to preserve the activity. Yeah, and it says it, it leads us leads us to to not um, noticing, not qu- we stop questioning, mm. because when we're wrapped up in uh, a mechanicality of something, we are doing. Um, I don't know. We we we're praying ten times a day, and we go to church on Sunday. That is that makes me this good person. Um, we stop questioning. Absolutely, and and he, re- and he really does it. He he explains it fantastically because he said that what we do is we come to accept these failures <laughs> of understanding, and we we make them the norm, the new normal. And he says, think. What sort of things do we accept as being okay? And by the way, that doesn't mean everybody. Violence in the name of freedom. So that's what re- that's what revolutionary yep. move, physical revolutionary movements are all about, etc., etc. This is good violence because we are liberating ourselves from oppression. Is it? Is it great? Because guess what happens? Inevitably, the people that then do the liberating through means of violence become the new oppressors, the new normal. I'm I'm now specifically using the ones that Spensky's using. And this is the first one. We accept violence in the name of freedom. We do. America's a great example of this, that it's been conned into believing that violence in the name of freedom is perfectly moral and okay. And we have this. We have loads of other things. Violence in the name of love. That would be your religious ones sometimes, wouldn't it? Um, Violence in the name of love. Oh, my God. The gospel of Christianity with sword in hand. We used that as an... We British used that as an excuse to build an incredibly enslaving and rapacious empire. But we said we were civilizing the world. Really? Really? Britain civilized the world by enslaving most of it and taking all of its resources and enriching itself. Hmm. Well, you have to be... You have to be able to twist your own logic. Or genocide. Uh, or genocide. We, we, we did commit genocide as well, and you live in a country where we did it, and, and Americans live in another country where we did it. So, you know, this is the, these are the delusions. Inquisition for the glory of a God of mercy. And now we're talking about the Spanish Inquisition here, you know, the, the torturing Inquisition of Torquemada. Um, in, in, the, in the glory of God of mercy, the oppression of thought and speech on the part of ministers of religion. All of these are incarnated absurdities of which only humanity is capable. I love that. I love it when Ospensky points this out. Yep. We, we do. But then we think that we understand. Yeah. Capable by reason of its own strange duality. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we, we need to get to the heart of every emotion and understand the truth of it. So look at things like the, um, the French Revolution. So the French Revolution, if I was a person who had no food, I would have no qualms about being storming the Bastille. It would be, that is violence, but that is violence in the name of freedom. But, you know, that is also um, purely a pure motive to do that. However, if I was um, invading a country and enslaving its people, violence in that way for me would not be would not be acceptable like for me i have a duality of where violence is okay and where it's not all in the name of freedom okay so so what does so that mean what happens when you 
storm the Bastille because somebody's told you that that's, that's the only way that you're going to change, but that that person that told you was lying. Yeah. It's because yeah, before you go storming the Bastille, you need to start looking at the emotion involved on the person that's telling you to do it. Is, is that person telling you from the point of view of a pure emotion that is a universal truth, or does that person have an ulterior motive? Let me tell you about the French Revolution and, and the idea of freedom. Not one single peasant got one more piece of bread following the revolution than they had before it. What, what? No, is that right? No, that's not how I would have thought it would, would have worked out here. Yeah. The people who instigated the French Revolution are bloodline elites, in other words, the aristocracy, and it was because the, the monarch wasn't doing what they wanted. He wasn't following the agenda in the way that they wanted, and so he had to go. Uh, if anybody wants to know about the French Revolution, actually read about it instead of watching some cheap Hollywood film. And you'll find that the people who instigated it and that the people who benefited and profited from it weren't the peasants. This was not a popular uprising. They were used, as poor people always are in any violent activity that's instigated by ruling elites, they were used as the cannon fodder. Now, we're going to talk about the terror. Oh, and even aristocrats lost their heads in the, t in the terror of Robespierre. Not as many as you'd think, and not enough to change the system, and pretty much exclusively the ones that, that the real ruling classes didn't care about. It, they were a show. They were a show for the people. No different from the gladiatorial experience of ancient Rome. Bread and circuses at that point, for a short while until it got too close to home, and then it was stopped. What happened? Robespierre went from being a hero to having his head cut off literally, literally overnight, and the terror ended. We've done the job now. We're in charge. There's nobody to bring back what we had before, and it paved the way for something else. And what that something else ended up being was Napoleon, and then the restoration of a monarchy. And then, when France was in utter turmoil, by the mid to mid to late part of the 19th century, it was a case of, we're going to have to stop this monarchy lock, we're going to rule, but we're going to rule by some faux, fake, democratic, universal process, where people will believe that they have a say in what goes on in this country, but they don't. We are a de facto oligarchy, and that's what happened. And the French Revolution was never, and I mean never for one moment, a popular uprising. Read a history of it. You'll find that that's the truth. Well, there, there's my example. <laughs> Burned down in flames. Yeah, but, 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 it, but, it does, but it isn't because it makes... it make, No, but it made a great point, Alice, because you um, came up with the popular image. And this is the delusion that people live under. And this is exactly at the heart of what Spensky's talking about. So Spensky's point is, I, I feel, that we, as, as mankind gets sucked into what he says, enticed away by activity, are his words. So much so that we stop questioning and we stop seeing the duality of the ridiculousnesses of the things that we accept, the, the contradiction, yep. I should say, of the things that we accept. Yeah, that's right. That's what he's saying. It's like, and so you don't see that in the animal kingdom. You don't see a pack of wolves going, oh, well, we'll, we'll just race out and... Uh, 
uh, rip a deer to shreds because we feel like it. You know, that they have a purpose and they're doing what they're doing um, without it being just the activity of hunting. Their hunting always has a purpose at the end. They don't just go out hunting for yeah. the hell of it. Well, we go, we as human beings uh, go out hunting as well. It's, it's called empire building. We go, and, we go and hunt other nations down, not to kill them and eat them, but to subject them to who we are. It's a cultural subjection. And as Ospensky puts it, and it's, a, it's, it's anachronistic to his time, but it's easy to understand. In his time, the paradox that the crown of European culture is the dreadnought. The people that don't know what a dreadnought is, this was the, these were the first great iron battleships. Not the ironclads of the 19th century, but battleships as we would recognize them with 16-inch guns and things. You'll find them happening in the First World War. It was the dreadnought um, war, the, the arms race of the dreadnoughts, that almost was responsible for the First World War. So, but we, we looked upon the dreadnought as the peak of our culture and our technological advancement, what the ability to impose our will over nations at a far reach, because that's what a dreadnought does. And that, that, that is paradoxical. Whereas what we did have were artistic movements with, that served us culturally better to suggest what kind of human beings we were in Europe. I mean, in his era, what a flowering of art and literature. But there you go. Yeah, he says he says that we we focus on the intellectual achievements and not the humanitarian ones. And why do we do that? Like he says, Europe had a, a bunch of examples other than the yeah. dreadnought, you know, the abolition of slavery. Um, yeah, but what is it about the dreadnought? He says um, the man. Of, I'm just going to read mm-hmm. what he says. A man of European culture invents with equal readiness a machine gun and new surgical apparatus. I like it, and and it's a great thing. And therefore, such a thing as this happened. Aerial navigation, in other words, flight, actually happened. You know, it was it was once the thing that men had looked forward to for millions, you know, millennia. For example, we have the story of Icarus in Greek mythology, which, which also has a different um, message to give. But it, it is about this idea that Icarus, the, artif- uh, and the artificer, you know, wanted to fly and invented the wings and ended up flying too close to the sun. So, yes, men have wanted to fly for a long time. And the moment we achieve the ability to do it, what do we do? We but we build bombers and fighter planes. <laughs> Can't help it. It's, yeah. In the sense of flight, the first powered flying machine went up with the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk, and it wasn't designed or invented to be a weapon of war. It's the direction that we then take it. There's a purity of desire, in, in a certain sense, from the Wright brothers to want to be the first people. They wanted to... Well, that makes it impure. To want to be the first makes it impure. To, to want to do it at all, just for the sake of knowing that we can have powered flight... Uh, that's a pure, pure way of doing it. The Wright brothers weren't sitting there thinking, when we've done this, we can put a machine gun on it or drop a bomb out of it. They weren't thinking that. There's certainly no evidence to suggest that that, was, that, that that happened at all. Somebody saw what the Wright brothers had done and said, bloody hell, we can drop crap onto people from one of these from a great height. It didn't take long. It, 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 was, it happened very, very quickly. So Spensky keeps on bringing this word morality into all of this context. He's, he's first of all says that, you know, why did we look at the dreadnought and 
not the real accomplishments. And he says, but there is no there is no morality in them. And when he talks about flight, he says, morality, this is a coordination and the necessity for coordination of all sides of life with the higher emotions and the higher comprehensions of the intellect. Where's he going with it? Well, well, first of all, he's going to he's going to tell you to find a different definition for morality. Instead of saying morality and thinking you know what he means when he uses that word, start investigating it because the morality that you think you know is the imposed one, the fake one, the the one that restricts you and constricts you and stops you from doing it. Oh no, no, I would never sleep with a hundred men. Oh, that's rude. That's dirty. Well, if if you have a pleasure um, impulse that makes you want to have experience that. What's making you not do it? I'll tell you what's making you not do it. The imposed morality of several thousand years that the people that impose it on you don't apply to themselves. I'm using that as an example because it's a really obvious one. Most women will say that. And I brought Tinder up earlier. And this is one of the things that come. If you're here for a one night stand, then go somewhere else. Well, that's fine. You don't want one. But have you ever investigated why you don't? Have you ever asked yourself why you don't? No, you haven't, have you? You think that it's an accepted universal truth that there's something wrong with having sex with people. That, that it has to be done in a very, very narrow and specific concept, context. And there you go. And I use it because it's the one that people absolutely hit on. When you hear the word morality, I'll guarantee you, I will guarantee you that 99.999% recurring of people automatically have a sex switch turned on in their brain. There are other forms of morality, but that's the one that comes first. Promiscuity is the one that comes to mind first, whether consciously, subconsciously, or whether in images or not within images, but the word morality is so, so linked with sex and in particular with promiscuity, that that's what happens. Now, when Spensky talks about morality, he quite clearly isn't using the term in that very narrow context. And what he's actually asking us to do is look at, a, at what morality actually is, or, sh or could be or should be, rather than a, rather than a slavish imposition of perception. I see. And now I understand, because what he actually goes on to say is if we look at morality from the point of pure or impure emotion, then we have a guide. Thank you. We have the guide that tells us what what is, you know, the direction, and that's with the pure emotion. The pure emotion will give you that that direction. That is that should be your moral compass, not the uh well, I didn't even know what to call the other, because we call it morality, but it's not. It's it's this imposed set of guidelines as to how you should and shouldn't and behave. And think and shouldn't think. Which has nothing... Um, yeah, and, and perceive. And think, yeah, yeah, which has nothing to do... Yeah, which has nothing to do with your true guide, which is that pure emotional guidance. That's it. I agree. It is the guide. That, that pure emotion is going to be your, your, your moral that, compass. That's what he's saying. This idea of morality that he goes on to... He just expands and expands and expands on it with example after example after example of why we get deluded and get why why we get trapped into the delusion and what what form that delusion then takes for us. Without the connection morality makes between our actions and their relation to the whole, we don't connect to the higher life of our daily activities. We we get out of sync 
where they quest for knowledge and treat our lives separately. There's a spiritual life and there's a... Yeah, we um, create two lives. What we, what we do with our daily yeah. activities. In one, we are preternaturally strict with ourselves, analyse with great care every idea before we discuss it. In the other, we permit with extreme ease any compromises and easily keep from seeing that which we do not care to see. And we do. But, but we, we can simplify this and say we live subjective lives. We do. We live very subjective lives. We see the world and experience things based on our feelings. Uh, we don't look for the truth. We think that ours is the truth. And that's the delusion. It's, just, it's, it's what he's saying here. It's, it's absolutely what he's saying here. And we have no sense of personal responsibility, no boldness. And, even, and we are even without the consciousness of their necessity. And we don't. We have no sense of personal responsibility. And when Spensky says that, the responsibility he means is to investigate the purity of the emotion behind everything that we experience, see, hear, ex get told about. We don't investigate. We don't reduce it to the purity of the emotion. And basically, if anybody wants to know how to do this, then you take a translation in a language of your choice of the works of Plato, which actually are not the works of Plato in, in, in one sense, uh, in, in the sense that he, he uses the dialogues of Socrates to make his own points. But the Socratic dialectic is the method with which you and any human being can go about. You don't have to be a, a genius. Anybody can use that formula to find the pure source of anything that's going on that you encounter. It's called Socratic dialectic, and it reduces by questioning everything to its purest level, if indeed it's possible to find it. What you do come to with um, Socratic dialectic sometimes is that the position is so absurd that there's no truth behind it at all, and you have to think again about the proposition whatsoever. I'll give you an example. Um, the discussion in one of the works uh, is about justice. What is justice? People think they know what justice is. But when Socrates starts questioning them, and his questions are so skillful and persistent that everybody realizes that there's nobody knows what justice is whatsoever. Because justice is subjective. It's a subjective concept. And everybody tries to look at it from the point of view of subjectivity, at which point you reach a point of absurdity, in which case you realise that you can't know anything about justice. Well, actually you can. And this is where uh, the Socratic dialogue takes the real critical thinkers down a different road. But mo for most people, it's enough to understand that their initial thoughts, what they've assumed that they knew, they don't know at all. And that's a great starting point for actually finding the truth. And that seems to me is what Spensky's talking about. Uh, to me, that's exactly what he's talking about in this chapter. I mean, we've sp this is the fourth, fourth part of this chapter for us, uh, and we're nowhere near finished it. But I think that we don't need to keep laboring the point. And I think that people have got the point that we need to question. First of all, we're deluded by a framework of morality that was not of our own choosing, that this morality distorts the truth of any given situation, which, which you know, and stops, and stops you, stops questioning. you from questioning because because you automatically assume that you know that you have perfect knowledge of any situation, and also it it gets the others to judge based on yeah. that morality. So you are then pulled into line by everyone else who's sucked into the same framework. Um, 
because they're not questioning either. Well, you've... This psychological way of thinking is contagious. The group, the group way of thinking is very contagious. Because it starts from a point at a very early age of conformity. We learn. I mean, you'd be surprised how early we learn to conform. We conform with our parents. We conform with our family units. And the more, the more we see of the world, the more we conform with the groups that we realize that or believe ourselves to be part of. So, so we start from there. Once you do, once that's happened and that happens within months, if not sooner, of a child being born, then the herd mentality is easy to, to actually program onto any individual getting your individually individuality back from society is a difficult thing so that the very few people that do it are often labeled eccentric either that or you have to um, find yourself a position in the arts become like a, a rock musician who are allowed to be eccentric and individual you know something like that or an artist other than that the, that conformity Programming is incredibly difficult to break free from. And Uspensky's work is, is, is stimulating us into a, at least wanting to try. And when Uspensky talks about we get distracted by having activity and he talks about, you know, that activity is focused on destroying stuff. You know, we, we, aren't, we aren't focused on, you know, we, 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 we count our greatest endeavours where we've gone and conquered mm. and where we've... we've, we've, we've destroyed things so that the those that are looking at things outside of this framework who are starting to question who are starting to or who are questioning who are understanding things differently and looking at morality from the pure and impure emotional sense they uh, are going to be as you say they're, they're going to be a different type oh, of person they're going to be and he calls yep. it a different race of man okay and and Uspensky tells us how that how we can look at that so basically um, he says that there's no tyranny more ferocious than the tyranny of morality and and I agree and that's exactly what we've been saying and that's why I've been so forceful yeah. about it because that is a hundred percent true that is absolutely the truth but he goes on to say that, that humanity needs morality, but of a different kind, such as is founded on real data of superior knowledge. Humanity is passionately seeking for this and perhaps will find it. Notice that he doesn't say that we will find it. He says, but it is a possibility. And if we search and search, then maybe it will happen. He says, then on the basis of this, and he puts this in italics, new morality will occur a great division. And those few who will be able to follow it will begin to rule others or they will disappear altogether. And I think the disappearance is what will happen. In any case, because of this new morality and the forces which it will engender, the contradictions of life will disappear and those biped animals which constitute the majority of humanity will have no opportunity to pose as men any longer. Now, that means that people who understand the new morality of absolute truth will have evolved and that the rest of humanity will look just like animals to them. Other bipeds, yes, but you know, a bit moronic. You know, and that's what he's saying. And so basically, he is now echoing the work of Friedrich Nietzsche, who in also Sprach Zarathustra and other works speaks of the Ubermensch, this 
evolved human. Now, before we start going on to the way that the Nazis took Nietzsche, so Nietzsche must have been a Nazi. Nietzsche was long dead before the Nazis came to power. So, no. And Nietzsche was a philosopher of great depth and understanding. And he wasn't talking about an Aryan super race. He was talking about spiritual and intellectual evolution that was possible of a man that would ask the appropriate questions. It's it's almost post-Socratic, uh, the way and the and the need to question and the need to review the framework in which societies live, and Uspensky obviously clearly was influenced by Nietzsche's great work, in particular Zarathustra, and just because idiots have associated Nietzsche with Nazism doesn't mean that we should throw Nietzsche out with the bathwater and we absolutely shouldn't nor should we throw Uspensky out. This is this is really really what Uspensky is talking about not that some people like aristocrats now will think themselves better than other humans but that spiritually and intellectually some people who question in the right way and meditate in the right way to find the answers to those questions will somehow evolve into people with superior understanding of the world and reality, free from the delusion that the rest of the bipeds, as Uspensky lovingly puts it, <laughs> um, are stuck in. So, so this, this is a critical point here, that only by finding the purity of emotion do we actually get to evolve, and we will become different once we start doing this. You, you yourself will become different once you start doing this. Pretty cool, hey? Yeah, that just blows me away because I get it. I think I I'm get pretty it sure anyway. you do. That purity of motion is knowledge. That's true knowledge. Well, this new morality says organized forms of intellectual knowledge, science, are founded upon observation, calculation, and experience. And philosophy founded upon the speculative method of reason, reasoning and drawing conclusions. The organized forms of emotional knowledge are religion and art. Interesting, isn't it? But all of them have been mm. used to enslave humanity into a framework of morality that's not pure. And to stop them questioning. They're asleep when it comes to the decisions they're making because they're making it on this this framework that they're not even aware is a framework. I mean, he talks about art serving beauty, you know, in other words, emotional knowledge of its own kind. And art discovers the beauty in everything and compels man to feel it and therefore to know it, which is why art is so critically important and everybody knows that it is. You know, it, it is. Um, I'm going to read how Spensky ends this chapter because... It's absolutely amazing. He says, Science and philosophy, religion and art begin to serve true knowledge only when in them commence to manifest the sensing and finding of some inner property in things. In other words, we go back to the essence of a thing. In general, it's quite possible to say, and perhaps it will be most true to fact, that the aim of even purely intellectual systems of philosophy and science consists not at all in the giving to man of certain data of knowledge, but in the raising of man to such a height of thinking and feeling as to enable him to pass to those new and higher forms of knowledge to which art and religion approach more nearly. And then he critically says, 
It is necessary, however, to remember that these very divisions into science, philosophy, religion, and art betray the poverty and incompleteness of each, because we're separating something where there shouldn't be a division, where we should be looking at them holistically. Isn't that cute? That is magical, though, yeah. I, it really is. And I, you know, I, I really wanted to make that point. He goes on to say, a complete religion unites in itself religion, art, philosophy, and science. A complete art equally unites them, while a complete science or a complete philosophy comprehends religion and art. A religion which contradicts science and a science which contradicts religion are both equally false. And that's how it ends with this chapter. And uh, by God, he's right. I think, you know, yes, we've taken four episodes to go through this chapter. Um, and probably I've waffled and ranted and, and gone way off tangent so many times. But I find, I find in ev virtually every sentence of this chapter something that needs exploring. And something that's so fundamental and true uh, that I I didn't want to ignore it. And I don't know, maybe you felt the same, but we to, between us, we've gone through four episodes on one chapter. And it, and, and it takes us to that at the end, what we just discussed. We just read out there. And, you know, Pete, I'm going to thank you because I've read this chapter many times. But I didn't get the essence of it until I had a chat with you. Once we've got to the point of, of un, at least of understanding the, the truth of what he said in that chapter, the next chapter allows us, and without it we couldn't go on to the next chapter, discover knowledge and consciousness. And we're going to discuss, discuss different forms of consciousness. And, and in this sense, I'm, I'm reasonably happy to use the word. It doesn't make me feel sick to the stomach uh, like it has in previous contexts. In this, we're going to talk, the next chapter, we start talking about um, waking consciousness, dreams, and dualistic sensations, and so on. It's, in, it's really interesting. But we're looking at them, we're going to start exploring them with the understanding of separating ourselves from the delusion of what we think they are, and getting to the heart of what they really are. Oh, I, I'm so looking forward to it. I've already prepared it. <laughs> I know you, you are way ahead of the posse. Um, but yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed this chapter and I look forward to chapter 19, as do Me you. Me too. Thanks so much again, Pete, for, uh, for this robust discussion. It was discussion. brilliant. I enjoyed it. And thank goodness we got to the end of chapter 18 at last. Yeah. Yes. Praise the Lord. Well, I'll, see, I'll <laughs> see you on the next one. I'll see you then. And thanks everyone else for listening. We look forward to your company for chapter 19.